There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Hi, this is Brett, and you are listening to The Essential School Sucks, number three, a powerful voice in the fight for school choice. This was a conversation that I had with Corey DeAngelis, one of the most powerful voices in the fight for school choice, as the first full pandemic school year was beginning in September of 2020. And we are examining how school politics and the conversation around school choice is changing and evolving and getting more exciting than during the pandemic and now post-pandemic as Corey's great work continues. His following has exploded. And the reason why I wanted to put this show here in this series, pretty early on in this first section about the real problems with public schooling, is I want to assure you that we're taking a comprehensive approach. Today we move away from the historical and the contextual, the big picture of the school problem and into our current age. Last episode was pretty dark and we will return to that darkness. But with today's show, I just want you to feel assured that we're going to have all the bases covered on this issue. So we're gonna change directions a little bit and through the discussion of another problem, we're going to talk about mindset and strategies for first winning the school choice argument, but also for becoming a more generally confident communicator about your growing dissonance with public schooling and even higher education, so-called. Uh, if you're on Twitter, I don't recommend being on Twitter, but if you're on Twitter or Facebook, definitely follow Corey. I will link that in the show notes. And before we get started, I just wanna say thank you to you. Even at the beginning of this Essential School Sucks collection, I'm already really, really grateful uh, for how much uh, engagement, interest, uh, positive support, downloads. It is really, really motivating, which is great because I have a lot of work ahead of me with this over the next couple months, but it is also incredibly gratifying to feel like the time for this message has finally come. This whole Essential School Sucks endeavor began as something that was personal to me, that as far as the School Sucks podcast was concerned, I left behind something that was clean and comprehensible to the people who need it now. But seeing the positive attention that is already building around this, it means a lot to me. So thank you so much for your participation. If you wanna learn more about how you can support the School Sucks Project and our future endeavors beyond this Essential School Sucks collection, how you can get more content and how you can even interact with more people in our world, including me, 
Stay tuned after the show or check the show notes. And you're about to hear The Essential School Sucks number three, a powerful voice in the fight for school choice. And it's not just about Corey being that powerful voice. I think there's a lot of good strategies for how you can become a more powerful voice towards that end as well. This was originally released as podcast 675, entitled Corey DeAngelis, Educational Freedom, If You Can Keep It, on September 14th, 2020. Thanks for listening. Here we go. everybody. This is Brett. Welcome back to the show. Today is Monday, September 14th. I'm very pleased to welcome Corey DeAngelis back to the show. Are you following people right now? You still follow? It's okay if you are. I think Corey needs to be one of those people. If you use Twitter or Facebook, go to the show notes and learn how to follow him. I would say Twitter is his most central hub for seeing all of the articles that he writes, all of the academic papers he is working on or has published and are coming up again. And of course, all of his battles for educational freedom and school choice. This is going to be, I would say, the focal point of our conversation today. It's a conversation I've been meaning to have for a while. All the way back in June, we were talking about Corey's work and his strategies for generating meaningful conversation about school choice, for winning hearts and minds, and for mobilizing already supportive people into more support and more action. Today, he'll reveal uh, a lot of the strategy behind all of that. But we'll do a bit of a lead-in talking about some really positive developments for the 2021 school year as far as school choice is concerned. This is, as I've been saying, a great moment for educational freedom, but it also means that the real fight to keep it has probably just begun. My guest today is a man who enjoys that fight, and he'll explain why and how he does it. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Welcome back to School Sucks. Hey, thanks for having me. 
So last time you were on the show was May, and I did notice like your following on Twitter has doubled since then. It's because of your show. <laughs> You've elevated me. <laughs> Boom. I do want to talk about your strategy a little bit once we get going here, but I had some really exciting news, something that I just learned about on Monday. It's a, a personal story, and I haven't shared it with anybody on the show yet, so I figured you'd be a good first person. Uh, I've done School Sucks for 11 years. I have family members who have younger children, and I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. I don't know if you can relate to this story, to be asked for my advice or my expertise, and the questions never came. And then uh, Monday was Labor Day, so I'm at a cookout with uh, just the immediate members of my family. And my brother tells me that he has unenrolled his daughter from first grade. She may never, who knows what's going to happen. She may never go to public school. Mm -hmm. And he has pooled resources with five local parents hired a teacher and they have launched uh, a learning pod. So I'm very, very excited to tell you about that, to announce that to my audience and just to experience that, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and it's kind of like this, the, the school system is partially creating this problem for itself, right? Um, and you have a lot of school districts right now complaining about losing enrollment, but at the same time, they're not reopening the schools in person. And a lot of families wanted that in-person experience for for their children this year. And so the, the school system, by preventing reopening as long as possible, has created this weird problem where we're seeing an exodus from the public school system everywhere. Gallup just did a, a national poll on this, and they estimate that there's going to be about a seven percentage point reduction in the proportion of children in traditional public schools this year. So from about 83% of the school age population uh, to about uh, 76% percent of the school age population, which would be about 3.5 million fewer students in the public school system this year. And that's just a survey. I mean, that's one of them. There's another one by Civis Analytics, for example, and they uh, found that 40% of the respondents had disenrolled their children from the school that they were supposed to go to. So that could be, you know, switching from one public school to another or from a public to a charter or from a public to a private, but that still suggests a large amount of movement uh, going around in the school system. There's a shakeup there that suggests that there's a tremendous opportunity. I heard you and Bob talk about that on Random Assignment, right? Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't clear what the 40% exactly meant if it was mm -hmm. all movement, because 40% seems like a huge number. But the fact that something that people have traditionally been so passive about, even if it comes to actively telling themselves stories about why what we do with our children, you know, 40 hours a week, loading them on this bus, having them disappear into the custody of strangers, even though they're there all day, they come home with hours of homework and they hate it. It causes problems in families. Uh, it's uh, good enough, people have said, <laughs> for a long time. And, and now we actually see that there is uh, a willingness to shake things up, which presents an opportunity for sure. Yeah, and it's not just in the survey data. I just want to point out real quick that Civis Analytics survey, they also found that 17% of the respondents who said they disenrolled their children are going to keep it that way, that they're not going to return their children to schools when they reopen in person, even when they're they're safe to do so. So they're committing to make a long-term switch as well. So 17% is a pretty significant number. But if you just look at little reports from different school districts across the United States, everywhere that that's been reported, I've seen pretty large reductions in enrollment counts from the same time last year. 
You have Dallas. I looked into to their uh, numbers. I think it was about a 2 or 3% reduction in enrollment. Fairfax County Public Schools in my area, they reported around a 3,000 student reduction, which turned out to be almost a 2% reduction in enrollment. You have the two biggest school districts in Arizona reporting about a 3 to 5% reduction in enrollment. And it's bigger for the, the lower age groups in all of these places. In the elementary schools in Arizona, for example, it's about a 10% reduction in enrollment from last year. And most places you would expect an increase in enrollment, right, just because of popula- uh, you know, slow population growth over time. So that we're seeing any reductions at all is suggestive that people are leaving. And then it, I'm sure you already know about the homeschool filings are up. Uh, a lot in in so many areas. One example is the largest school district in Utah, for example, has a 175% increase in homeschool filings from the same time last year. And we, and I could just rattle off like tons of of districts that are in the above a hundred percent increase in homeschool filings from the same time last year. Yeah. And I think so. It's great that when the rubber hits the road, we're actually seeing this kind of change in such great numbers in so many places. Um, do you have, and this, this is something I was looking for the other day and I had trouble pinning down accurate figures nationwide. If there were something between like 2.5 and 3 million homeschoolers last year, what the number is for the 2021 school year, or can, maybe it can't be determined yet. Yeah. You have to look at individual school districts and that's the problem here, right? Uh, I just have all these little examples of homeschool filings going up and the data are still kind of moving around, right? Because the school year just started, but from the Gallup poll, they estimated a doubling of homeschooling. So, you know, it'd be about uh, two to, to 4 million um, uh, from, from the same time last year in homeschooling, which is pretty substantial, um, but again, that's just a poll about and, and people saying what they plan to do. What's interesting about the Gallup poll, though, is that they they explicitly stated that they defined homeschooling as unenrolling your children from the public school system. Mm-hmm. In other surveys, people were skeptical because they were concerned that people were going to think of public school at home as homeschooling. But what's good about the Gallup poll is they made that clear that what they mean about homeschooling is you're not enrolled in a formal school setting. So... Um, I think that data suggests it could double, you know, from, from I guess, around 2, two million to 4 million uh, students. Yeah. Another really encouraging thing right now is just the whole zeitgeist. While we're, while we're polling, right, let's go to <laughs> New York State, which is, you know, in the upper part of the state, the western part of the state, there's more variety as far as ideology is concerned. But the population centers of New York are obviously pretty far left. And a poll, a uh, Harris poll, found almost 80% of people expressing a favorable attitude in the, mm-hmm. in the current setting, a uh, favorable attitude towards homeschooling. And that was even above the national average, which I think was around 65%. Yeah. And if you like homeschooling um, in this version that people kind of got a taste of during the spring, just imagine how much they would like it if they got full blown homeschooling. But yeah, we've seen a lot of favorability polls as well from EdChoice. They do nationally representative surveys. They've been doing them since, uh, I want to say, April each month. And they've been steadily finding every single month that families are about two to 2.5 times more likely to say that they are they now have a more favorable view of homeschooling as opposed to saying that they now have a less favorable view of homeschooling as a result of their test drive during uh, the, the lockdowns. And in the most recent month in July, they actually found a huge spike that it, that it increased by a pretty large amount 
you know, there's a couple of theories for why that could be. It could be just people really started to figure out how to get the homeschooling thing uh, accomplished in a, in a meaningful way. Or it could be that they're just now realizing, oh, crap, my schools aren't reopening in person. Right. Now I now the homeschooling idea sounds like even an even better idea because I'm getting left out of the conversation when it comes to the public school system. And I want to point out that I think it's because the public schools aren't reopening because they don't have an incentive to do so. They get your money regardless through the property tax system. So they have every incentive in the world to stay closed. Um, and this, this is why we're seeing the private schools fighting to reopen and private businesses, including schools and daycares, fighting to reopen, then the public school systems in far too many places are fighting for the opposite to remain closed. And I think it has a lot to do with incentives. Yeah, let's talk about that because you wrote this, this article called Cannibalizing Private Life. And again, like I said, I've been doing this stuff for 11 years, and I was still quite surprised by some parts of this article. You wrote it for the Washington Examiner about a week ago. Two of the main points here are that people, by and large, are finally forced to confront the fact that they're not receiving a service that they pay for, right? Like when I talked Mm -hmm. a few minutes ago about people's ability to tell themselves stories about why this system is good and why they have to keep sending their children there and why they have to keep uh, supporting it. But now in this situation, people are, many people, I think for the first time, my brother included, who's not like, uh, you know, a zombie. I mean, I think he's a free thinker, but he's also a kind of the by the book guy that he is picking up and doing a pod is like uh, a major evolution. The other part, aside from people having to finally confront this, is that the coercion is laid bare, right? For the things that you're starting to talk about, schools are actually trying to uh, <laughs> like double dip, right? So they're, they're trying to shut down options, coercively. Uh, But then at one point in this article, you say several public school districts that decided not to reopen in person are even reopening their elementary schools as childcare centers and charging families for the service out of pocket. It's absolutely ridiculous. I don't know how closely you've looked at this, but how are they even justifying that? I mean, this is like, I I listed out the states in the article, I believe, but it's like five to 10 states that have districts that that are doing this that I know of. It's probably actually more um, but yeah, they're reopening the school in the schools, but then they are reopening a large portion of the elementary schools. And then they're charging families out of pocket for the service, even though the families are already paying for it uh, through the property tax system. So it's a, essentially a form of extortion. Just imagine if a private school were to do that. If they were to uh, take $15,000 from you in tuition and then said that they weren't going to give you any of that money back and that they weren't going to provide the service that they promised and they weren't going to reopen the schools. And then they... Uh, went back to you the next week and the private school were to tell you, oh, well, actually, we, we might provide you with this service. We're thinking about reopening the schools only if you give us another 15000 So if you give us 30000 in total, we'll reopen the schools. That would be unlawful extortion. And that's essentially what the uh, traditional public schools are doing here. And I would argue it's unconstitutional because every single state constitution in the United States uh, has some type of clause in it to provide a free or what we know as a taxpayer-funded public education system. And it's hard for them to say that they're doing that, one, if the schools aren't open, but then two, if they're charging people out of pocket in addition to what they're paying through the property tax uh, system. So it's a form of extortion. And I think the reason that they are charging people extra for doing this is because they're bringing in new people to the buildings who are willing to watch the children and, and provide that service in person, whereas we're still having to pay the the families are still having to pay the teachers who are unwilling to go into the buildings because 
they have very nice job security and a guaranteed paycheck, and they're able to do so from the comfort of their homes. And then so the problem is, although that's a great deal for teachers, it's a horrible deal for families. They're essentially having to pay two people for the job of one um, because one group is is saying that they're not willing to come in and do the job that they they originally signed up for. And then another group, the daycare workers, are willing to come in. And so the families are having to pay the daycare workers in addition to the teachers who who are who are no longer in the buildings. So two people for the job of one. And that's, you know, hey, that's great for the teachers, but that's that's a disaster for families. And I think that's why so this is one another reason why so many families are realizing that this is a this is a disaster for them, right? This is they're they're getting the short end of the stick and they're continuing to have to fund a system that's not even reopening in person for them and they're not getting a say in the matter. Um, so I think people are looking at this and they're, they're seeing that they're getting a bad deal. And so there's starting to warm up to the idea of school choice even more that why doesn't the money go to wherever my child gets an education? If the school's not providing that education in an adequate way to my child, why can't the money follow my child to the home or a micro school or a private school that's willing to reopen in person um, so we might see a push, a bigger push for school choice as well, um, and, and having the money follow the child. Absolutely. So the U.S. federal government, and this is also true for state governments, they're not institutions typically associated with like agility and responsiveness to problems, uh, especially if uh, you know there are interests to protect. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, like the teaching, uh, the teachers union has a lot of power. Uh, power varies from state to state. Like, obviously, California is super powerful. States like I've talked to teachers from Florida who I, they convinced me that they were getting the short end of the stick with, um, you know, how things were working in that state. So the power uh, that a union has from state to state is a considerable factor. But if we just go up to the federal level, there are bills, right? introducing, they are now debating this, I think for the first time, right, in any really meaningful, like time sensitive way um, in Congress. Is that true? Yeah, just another one was introduced today. There's five different bills that I can think of off the top of my head that are uh, in Congress right now to have more money follow the child instead of going to institutions. And I will say I'm against having the federal government involved in education, but the reality is the federal government already is involved in the K-12 education system, and about 8 9% of all education funding comes from the federal government right now. And a lot of these bills essentially reallocate those dollars from the school buildings to the students. And so even from a libertarian perspective, this is a step in the right direction. For example, you have Rand Paul's, uh, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky's School Act, which would take nearly all existing federal education dollars, uh, which is um, about 50 to $60 billion per year, and reallocates that from the going directly to buildings to go to the individual student. And the student can still use those dollars to, and take them right back to their traditional public school if that works for them. But they can also use it for a micro school, a pandemic pod, uh, a, a homeschool option, a private school option, wherever, whatever type of institution works best for them. And so I think that's the best way to do it. I, I think it's a step in the right direction. We also have bills introduced by Senator Tim Scott and Lamar Alexander, the School Choice Now Act, um, which creates a federal tax credit scholarship program that uh, would be up to $5 billion per year. But it's not, a, it's not publicly funded, it's privately funded, but it does create this tax incentive 
to, to donate to scholarship granting organizations, which would then be able to give those dollars out to families to be able to use uh, for their children's education. But they also tie a percentage of the stimulus, the next stimulus fund to uh, individual families as well. So for example, if the next stimulus is $100 billion for K-12 education, they say that 10% of that would go to families. Um, so I think it, it would be with the $100 billion example, that would be $10 billion would, instead of going to institutions, it would go to individual families, which again, I think, I, I don't think stimulus bills are a good idea, but if you're going to have that same money being allocated, a significant portion of it should go to the people instead of the buildings. Yeah, I can tell from some of the words you use. I, I almost use the word pure, like ideologically pure. And considering the ideological purity test that we're watching going on in the world right now, I don't, I, you and I are on the same level, right? <laughs> we're coming from the same place. But one thing that I've always been reluctant to do is to like play the game that's already been set up, right? Around vouchers and school choice and money following children because of this aversion to political participation. Something that I just want to compliment you on is like you're speaking a language that people already understand on these issues where for a long time, I think a lot of people who were pushing for more educational freedom, we just wanted to go off into our mm -hmm. pure self-directed learning conception of this. And, you know, to... To say I don't want to participate in politics as a libertarian is kind of like if in Game of Thrones they said, the wall is stupid, uh, we don't need it, right? <laughs> the wall is there for, it's there to do a thing, right? <laughs> and what's on the other side of it is bad. And I think what I realized living in New Hampshire, which was a very, you know, live for your die, leave me alone kind of state, mm -hmm. but surrounded by states with different political <laughs> ideologies where those people like move here to escape the ideologies they've created in their own states, Massachusetts especially, um, you know, the, the complexion uh, of that has changed in New Hampshire and uh, defensive action is needed. So I, I, I say all that leading up to the question, we're talking about these positive developments, right? But a fight is coming. The fight has already begun. I know you like the fight. So what are you doing to prepare yourself for different aspects of it as far as like defense of educational freedom and school choice? I'm guessing with like the micro schools and the learning pods, people are going to say things like, well, it's exclusionary, only wealthy people can mm -hmm. afford it, which your money follow the child argument should solve that problem for these people. But I have a feeling that's not going to be the end of it. Yeah, I mean, if that's the concern that uh, pandemic pods will lead to inequities, that's already happening. Fa rich families are already going and forming uh, alternatives to the education system. Um, and that's just an argument for school choice, have the money to follow the child so that less advantaged families can do the same thing. That would lead to more equity. But a lot of these outlets that are saying that pandemic pods are bad things because of inequities, they somehow missed the obvious solution to fund the student directly so that other families can participate in, in these types of arrangements. My kind of strategy is to just shine light on all these ridiculous things that are happening with the schools reopening, the elementary schools reopening, but only if they charge you twice. I mean, it's just so ridiculous that all you really have to do is kind of cover these things that other media outlets don't want want to talk about. So I think just talking about these ideas um, really helps. And look, a lot of people for a long time, you're right, we're in a little bubble talking about school choice instead of making it more mainstream. And so I think um, another one of the strategies I like to use is, is analogies, that if you just compare 
this, the, the school choice voucher system to something else, um, it starts to click a lot more for people. And you don't even have to, to like these other programs just to understand the funding mechanism works better. So for example, with food stamps, I always like to point out that the money goes to individual people and not straight to government run grocery stores that people are residentially assigned to. And I think that even if you don't like food stamps, you understand that it's, it would be absolutely ridiculous to say that, well, the money should go directly to uh, government run grocery stores instead of individual families that if that money is going to exist in the system and if we're going to fund such a program, I think everybody from both sides of the all sides of the political spectrum could agree that if that money is going to exist in the system, it should go to people and it shouldn't go to institutions. And we do this with so many other programs. Uh, Pell Grants at the higher education level goes to students. The students can take that money to a public or private university of their choosing. It doesn't have to be spent at the the nearest community college, for example. Pre-K programs, similarly, the money goes to families. You can pick a public or private provider of pre-K programs. And you can go on and on and on. And K-12 education is the kind of the exception here where the money goes to the institution regardless of your choice. And, and this, uh, you know, primarily uh, negatively affects uh, disadvantaged populations. So people from all political persuasions should uh, get behind the idea that the money should go to individual people. Yeah. It's like, do you like choice or do you like not choice? Well, yeah. And, and if you're going to support these other programs, a lot of the people who don't support K through 12 vouchers, they'll support vouchers for education when it comes to higher education. They'll support it for pre-K and they'll support vouchers when it comes to food stamps or social security or Medicaid or Section 8 housing vouchers. Why is it that they don't support vouchers when it comes to K-12 education, the only reason that I can come up with is there is an entrenched monopoly when it comes to the K-12 education system that doesn't exist in any of these other sectors that the status quo in K-12 is that the money goes to the institution and then um, that's regardless of your satisfaction level and, and your choice. Whereas in these other sectors, the norm generally is choice, that people can take their money to the institution that works best for them. But since you have this entrenched interest in K-12 education, you have a lot of people fighting really hard to protect that monopoly. And look, that's, and, and that's the only reason that I can come up, up with. Because you know, if, if you bring up food stamps, people will say, well, education is different. Well, then you can come back and say, well, what about Pell Grants and Pre-K? Or yeah, if you bring up Pell Grants and GI Bill, they'll say, oh, well, that's, that's for adults, not for children. To which I'll respond, well, food stamps can be spent on children and social security mm-hmm. funding can, can be spent on children's K-12 education. Pre-K programs are for children, obviously. So there's a disconnect in the logic. And the only way that you can bridge that apparent logical inconsistency is the fact that there is a special interest involved in K-12 education that doesn't exist in these other sectors or not, not to the same extent. Broader question here, big question. Do you ever worry that we live in almost kind of like a post-dialectic world where echo chambers that people are in and the walls of these echo chambers that just keep getting higher and higher, that it is becoming more difficult to persuade people? Mm-hmm. And I think your answer to that question kind of leads us into talking about your, your general strategy a little bit. But mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time on Twitter. I know that's a very frustrating place, or it certainly is for me. You seem to have the the fortitude to deal with it. I go and look at your Twitter for show prep. (laughs) I was on there this morning for like 30 minutes, and I was like, I can't, I got to get off here. But you can do it. 
But that is the place mm-hmm. that is, I guess, sort of a testing ground of, uh, you know, the persuasive power that you can have in in this kind of uh, a format. So do you ever worry that there's just no argument that can be won anymore? Well, I think the concern is is that people think in, st- in sound bites now, right? Like you have to be able to convince them in a couple of sound bites, but that's why Twitter is a super powerful tool for persuasion on these matters. One in that it, it forces you to be able to make your arguments in sound bites, and it really refines your ability to to make these arguments, which forces you to do things like use these analogies with food stamps and Pell grants and other types of things like that, because that clicks for people, right? Yeah. And it forces you to do things like have an argumentative style where you ask rhetorical questions. That's another one of my main strategies on Twitter is that I'll ask a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer for everybody that's really hard for the other side to answer. And that's that's a way to win the argument as well. Um, so for example, a lot of people will make make a ridiculous claim about school choice. They'll say, oh, well, school choice is going to destroy public schools. And then so I'll just respond by saying, well, uh, why do you think giving people the option to leave would destroy public schools? And the obvious answer to that is because they know that families want would leave when, in large numbers when given the option. Why would they leave? Because they're not being served adequately by the public schools. So without even saying all that stuff, you've kind of put that idea into people's minds. And it's a kind of a a way to make the argument and it, or at least lead your listeners and audience to the argument without even making it explicitly. So I think that's a, another benefit. And look, um, the reality is people think in sound bites. And so I think more people should be on Twitter, not less. I, know, I remember when I really started getting into Twitter, a lot of my academic friends were saying, get off Twitter. Twitter's a mess. It just makes people angry. Um, people are just shouting at each other. True. I mean, but that's when people are not doing it in in the right way and not participating in Twitter in a successful way that, you know, a lot of academics will go to Twitter and just try to write out an article with like a hundred different tweets and they, they won't try to force their argument into a small soundbite and they'll try to just do a whole thread that no one's going to read as if they're writing an academic paper and then they're not going to convince anyone. Um, And, and so they're trying to take the academic setting where if you're an academic, you're typically talking to students for hours and hours at a time. And they try to take that to the Twitter platform and doesn't really work out real well for them. But I think the real world is more of you're talking to people on the streets, you're at a bar with someone, you need to be able to convince them right away. Like sometimes I'll, you know, before the closure, obviously I'd, I'd be speaking to people uh, and friends um, in a, in a bar setting or, or just in person Sure, if you have a lot of time, you can go and and talk to them for hours and hours about your subject, but usually it's just kind of an on-the-side thing. Hey, I research this policy. Here's my arguments for it. And you you need to be able to convince them really quickly or you're going to lose them. I had this conversation with Isaac from Crash recently on the podcast about memes. We did a show called All News is Fake News. Is, is it bad for us to communicate in these sound bites like this? And what I realized when I thought about it more is there's two ways to do it, right? People can make memes that are like oversimplifications or, you know, it's just kind of copy and pasting <laughs> ideas from other people. Uh, but some good advice that I got from Thaddeus, Ru- you ever heard of Thaddeus Russell? Mm-mm. Uh, they wrote a book called The Renegade History of the United States. And he was saying to me when he was on my podcast one time, you can't have some big outline in front of you when you're trying to do a show, Mm -hmm. right? You need to know your stuff well enough that it can be on a three by five, right? 
And your, your depth of knowledge on the subject is good enough that you can just work off this three by five. And if you think about it, even almost like in physical size, that's what memes and sound bites are. So the responsible use of those things is to have like a depth of understanding of whatever you're talking about that you can meme and sound bite mm-hmm. effectively. I think that's a really important aspect of it as well. Yeah, it's true. And I don't know if you've seen my Facebook thread, but it's essentially a bunch of memes. People, people essentially call my, my tweets memes now because it's a, it's a short image that can be shared on Facebook that people understand really quickly. And I think yeah. you can like it or, or, or hate it, but that's how people scroll through their feeds and figure things out. They're not going to read a whole – and look, I, I just published another peer-reviewed public – my 30th peer-reviewed publication got accepted yesterday. And look, you know, it feels good to, to say that you've published you know, academic journal articles, but the reality is most people won't read those. You need to be able to con- convince people in other a- – uh, outlets, you, it's good to have the, the longer form academic articles too to kind of back up your claim. So you can have the the soundbite kind of image, and then yep. back it up with with links to these longer form articles if people want more information. And also, like even on Twitter, the, there's the threading thing. You can you can make your main claim up front, and then if that doesn't make sense to people, you can kind of add on beneath different sources or different arguments to support your main argument. And so I think that's a useful tool. And so, yeah, it's not just one or the other, it's both, but um, you need to be able to lead with, with something short that, that people, that, that clicks for people. Right. And that was, that was something when, when I was trying to spread a lot of libertarian ideas back in the day, I, I realized that you needed to be able to put together things that were incredibly concise and delivered a lot of punch. This is maybe even before I knew what a meme was. Mm-hmm. So you actually came up, we were talking about uh, at a couple guys from this podcast called Online Great Books on my show, and we were talking about Rules for Radicals. Not a great book, but an important book, right? A great book to understand uh, by Saul Alinsky. And we were talking about how people who, people like us who support school choice and educational freedom, what would be the Saul Alinsky approach that we would take to dealing with somebody like Bartholet? Just a quick insert here. Elizabeth Bartholet was a Harvard professor, Harvard law professor, who wanted to explore outlawing homeschooling or regulating it more. Uh, This was a big controversy in 2020 as homeschooling was getting more and more attention. So that is the reference to Bartholet. I will drop links in the show notes to the conversations Corey and I had about that particular controversy. All right, back to the show. And uh, one of my co-hosts is like, yeah, we hired a detective, find out what she did wrong in college, find out if one of her kids is a screw up, um, those kinds of things. And, and, and these weren't like serious things that we were going to do. But I said, you know, somebody who is really effectively stirring the pot is this guy I just had on my show for the first time. And he seems pretty, I think I, I, I might have been a little too hyperbolic. I said, he is ready to go to war. <laughs> <laughs> he screenshots his battles. And he rallies support. You know, he, he'll move things from one platform to another, the screenshotted battles uh, <laughs> that he's having. And it, it kind of led to me, like, thinking about it after. Do you see yourself being more about outreach, like winning hearts and minds, or trying to rally people who are already supportive 
um, to the cause, right? Because a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of us are passively for or against things. And we've talked all this time. I still don't even know like where you came from. I wonder after the first time I had you on the show, I was like, how come I never heard of him until a year ago? But you've obviously been at this for, for a while. And I'm just thinking like, if, if you think about your, your bigger mission in, in the ways you present, in the work you do, is it more about winning new people over? Or do you think it's more about um, converting people to taking action, right? They already have this as their cause and now they just need to do something with it or even be more active in it or is it a combination of the two yeah i think it's a combination of the two um and i want to say that the school choice movement has probably not been as successful as it could have been for a long time because they've tried really hard to not bring in a lot of the polarizing topics into the conversation for example from what i've seen from the school choice debate for a long time And the case for school choice for a long time has been, look, the public schools aren't doing that good of a job. They get low test scores. Here's a way to to get higher test scores for your students. And it's, it's school choice. And okay, that's not politically polarizing, but it's not going to mobilize anybody to support school choice, right? Like, you're not going to convince a lot of people. And I think the 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 tactic has also been do a lot of academic research and white papers and and to show, oh, look, you know, when people get school choice, they get better outcomes. And I've done these studies myself as well, um, pretty rigorous studies finding good outcomes for students. But I don't think that's the strongest argument for school choice. I don't think it's going to get a lot of people behind it, especially when you have the other side saying, oh, but but our studies say that school choice is bad. The kind of way that I've looked at it is that it shouldn't really matter what the evidence says. And so I've tried to make more of a moral argument for school choice that there has to be a reason people are choosing these schools for their children. And a couple of academics doing um, these studies should not determine whether these low-income families should be able to choose schools for their own children. And so I've tried to make more of a a moral case. I do share the evidence too, but I think the school choice movement has lacked the, the the moral arguments for school choice for far too long. And and then also like the, the political arguments for school choice. One of the biggest arguments for school choice right now is that uh, families might cons- might believe that there's indoctrination going on in, in the public school system. And if that's the case, well, families should be able to take their children's education dollars elsewhere. They shouldn't have to, one, pay for a system that's indoctrinating their children, and they shouldn't be compelled to su- send their children to schools that are indoctrinating their children in ways that they that they do not agree with. So that's another argument that needs to be made for school choice that could mobilize conservatives, for example, uh, to fight harder for school choice than they have in the past. And so, yeah, I think um, one of the mistakes has been to try to play too nice and and to try to just release academic papers and say, oh, look, you know, people should have choice because this academic paper says so. No, people should have choice regardless of what your study says. The studies are important that, that should back up your argument, but that shouldn't be the main argument for something as important as educational freedom. And so I think that's kind of a shift that I've tried to move towards. But yeah, I think it's important to do both, you know, mobilize and convince. Um, and one of the ways I do that is to use logical arguments. You know, it's, it's true that I'm, quote unquote, dunking on people on the other side for making bad arguments, but I'm not attacking their character. I'm not attacking them as a person. Um, I'm 
responding to them by directly refuting their arguments with with a logical argument or and, and then also supporting that with data. If it was just about rallying the troops, I I probably wouldn't care so much about the logical arguments, but I try really hard to beat the other side's arguments. And I think that, that school choice is just such, such a good idea that it makes so much sense. It's not that hard to beat the other side's arguments. Yeah. So being able to showcase that, I mean, not that that's always going to be effective, but if people are, you know, in that and they're, they're at least like feigning an interest in empiricism, you'd like them to follow through. <laughs> and then like when you deliver evidence that their argument is losing one, that they would, you know, stick to their guns and be like, yeah, you know, we're, we're into logic, we're into empiricism. So consider us persuaded, uh, even though that rarely happens. And maybe the moral arguments are more about mobilizing people who are already on your own side? Because I think one of the things that I learned when you said you're not, you're not attacking people's character, right? Obviously, like just ad homonyming people is not a winning strategy, even though it's incredibly popular <laughs> in places like Twitter, for sure. But our moral arguments, just interested if you've ever had experience with this, kind of a live wire in that today where it seems like this is just so much more true than it was 10 years ago. People have like their whole identity wrapped up in their politics, especially on the left, that pointing out to somebody the morality or the immorality of some position that they hold is easily perceived as an attack on them and a way to kind of sever a connection. I don't know if you've ever experienced that or, or thought about that much. Yeah, the way I try to do it is is to get into these analogies, right? And just to make the other side feel uncomfortable that they they support one particular thing, food stamps or Pell Grants or pre-K programs, but then they fight really hard against the same thing when it comes to K-12 education. And usually they don't have a good response for that. So some people will get convinced. Um when they realize that they're being logically inconsistent, but that's, that's more of what I mean about kind of, I guess it's not, I mean, yeah, for some people it's, there are moral arguments behind this, but more so just, I guess, yeah, just theoretically, you know, logically consistent arguments as well. Not, not just here's this study that shows this, but just pointing out the inconsistency in the logic, I guess is another powerful tool at convincing people who, who aren't already on your side. From my experience, that is the, if anything works, that is an extremely effective tactic, what you're talking about, where you help somebody, I think if they're defending uh, the schools as they are or anything else that requires coercion, and they seem to have some kind of logical flow, right? To, to have those examples, like you post on Twitter about where you get coffee or where you get your groceries, like those really good uh, analogies that you use, if you say, okay, if you agree that this is your logic, that we've ac- ac- accurately diagrammed your logic in defense of this coercive thing, let's pick up that diagram and set it down in some other example and see how that logic looks, yeah. right? And when we go, oh, wow, that is kind of a mess, that that has the potential to be persuasive. I agree. Yeah, I think where you lose, I think the losing battle with the other side is is when you try to make it too much, like your main point about the evidence. I think the evidence is important, but- you know, I, I've I, I started the school choice in my my kind of journey in the school choice world, making it all about the evidence, and and the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of school choice. But when you talk to someone on the other side, they'll they'll just say, "Oh, well, this study was conducted by this person, or you conducted the study, so therefore it must not be true." 
even if it's a rigorous method, I don't believe it because it's it's not written by a person. So they'll, they'll cherry pick in, in, in any way they can to try to say that school choice evidence isn't positive, or they'll say a null result of no difference in outcomes is a is not a is not a benefit, and therefore that's bad for for school choice in some way. Um, and so I, I I ran into a lot of roadblocks doing that, and I think that is actually more of a strategy for mobilizing people who actually already support your cause because they're going to believe the evidence they like and the other side is going to believe the evidence they like. And so this evidence-based case, a lot of people think it's it's useful in convincing the other side because they think people are going to listen to the data, but a lot of times they don't. They just take the, they look at the data they like. So I think a better way of convincing the other side is making the logical argument for, for school choice. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's kind of backwards from what I originally thought and what people in the school choice movement have been thinking for a long time. They thought that the evidence-based case is how you win the other side over. But I think making fee- people feel weird about being logically inconsistent is actually a better way to actually convince people on, on the, at the margins. And then, you know, with the, when, when people try to com- use evidence on the other side, I will ask them, well, okay, well, if if this particular school choice program led to standardized test scores, well, do you think that standardized test scores are are super valuable? And a lot of people who defend the government-run school system don't like standardized test scores when it comes to holding uh, government-run schools, quote-unquote, accountable. So I actually agree with them that standardized test scores aren't meaningful metrics of success. But that's another way to point out that they're not being logically consistent. So you're saying that a school choice program should be shut down because of plausibly lower test scores, but you're not saying the same thing about this 5% or 10% of schools that are failing. You still want them to stay open and you don't want people to be able to leave those schools. And so that makes them feel a little weird and, and makes them kind of realize that, well, yeah, maybe maybe we're on the same side here and we don't we don't care all that much about <laughs> standardized test scores. So I mean, that's another way to kind of talk about these things as well. Kind of inventory of agreements. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, a lot of the people who don't support school choice programs, I'm I'm thinking Diane Ravitch, for example, she does not like standardized test scores as a metric of of success, but every time she tries to talk about school choice programs, she argues that they're not uh, successful because they don't, she argues they don't change test scores. Well, which one is it? Are test scores important or are they not? Um, and you see this a lot in, in the school choice debate where, where people try to weaponize a certain metric that they don't even agree with to try to get rid of their competition. No, I do get that. Like I I will do a lot of by their own metrics, Mm -hmm. by their own (laughs) metrics, by the school's own metrics. I do use that a lot. One more tactic before we wrap up, I see examples where you'll at a prominent person based on something they say, and you know, you have to know going into it that it's a losing battle. So this is one that I saw this morning, and I actually jumped into this thread. Uh, David Hogg, who was uh, <laughs> rose to prominence during Parkland. Well, I don't. People have already heard who listen to my show have already heard my commentary on David Hogg and and the Parkland um, Second Amendment activists. But August thirty first, he tweets: When funding for education is cut, propaganda takes its place and rots the brains of our young people and destroys our electoral system. We all know what this is about. Mm -hmm. And this is literally like upside down world kind of stuff, right? That funding for education is cut 
We're not cutting it. <laughs> the propaganda that parents need to worry about is coming from the people who are trying to cut funding for education. And that's why our electoral system is destroyed. So it's like <laughs> from, from victim mentality to, to every inaccuracy that is just delivered in those three lines, that should be enough. But then this thread turns into like Orwell's uh, two minutes of hate, right? Because like the, the, our destroyed electoral system is like, okay, that symptom of that is Trump. So then everybody is just like saying orange Hitler. The threat is a mess, but it reminds me of that scene from, the, from 1984 or Orwell's writing of it in the book. Then instrols Corey with <laughs> the data on inflation-adjusted public school spending per student <laughs> at David Hogg. And I'm just wondering how that went. And uh, what the exercise is there. It went pretty well. I mean, well, yeah, he's arguing that we're cutting education funding, but we're not. Um, Every single decade. Yeah. So I just presented the data from, you know, 1960, 1970, 1980. Every single decade, we've increased real or inflation adjusted per pupil education expenditures in the U.S. So his whole premise is wrong that we haven't been we haven't been cutting education funding. We've increased it by a lot. By 1960, real education expenditures have per pupil have increased by 280% by uh, since uh, 1980 it's nearly doubled since 1990 it's nearly it's increased by about 40% in real terms so his 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 main premise to this tweet that probably got a lot of attention just just wasn't just wasn't true um, and then, I mean, another, yeah. So one person even responded saying, oh, but if you adjust, you know, the price, you're not very smart because the price of a Coke was this much in 1960. And now the price of a Coke is this much. And it's like, I responded, well, the first, you know, the, the, my, the first word was inflation adjusted. Do you not know what inflation adjusted means? So like this guy's trying to dunk on me and he, he ended up getting ratioed, uh, uh, deleting the tweet and putting his account on private. Because he was he was the one trying to be a jerk, right? He was he was trying to make me look stupid for not knowing that the price of a Coke has gone up and, and, and essentially implying that I hadn't adjusted for inflation when the first word of my tweet was inflation adjusted. Um, yeah. And, and I posted that on, on Facebook where people were just laughing about that. And, and it's, it's what I deal with on a daily basis, right? Because for one, I mean, a lot of people are on Twitter just trying to attack people they disagree with. And they, they, they want to attack the other side so much that they don't even read the first word of the tweet, inflation adjusted, and then they attack as much as possible. So that didn't go too well for him. Um, and then David Hogg was just wrong on his logic in another way, which I didn't even get into, is that if you think the schools are forcing um, propaganda, wouldn't decreasing funding in those propaganda centers reduce the amount of propaganda that's going on in those schools? Um, if if the schools are propaganda centers and you believe that um, increasing funding should increase that propaganda, if that's what they're doing in the school system. <laughs> so I think he's saying education is basically the barrier, right? Education is the shield against propaganda. His uh, claim is that we've destroyed education by defunding it, mm-hmm. defunding at a rate of negative 400% since 1960, as far as the defunding is concerned, <laughs> then propaganda takes its place. And that's why we're in the situation we're in. Oh, I think I saw a lot of like homeschooler types respond saying, but the schools are, are what fuel the propaganda. So people are making just a different argument, I guess, in response. 
<laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just like people should go and look at that tweet. And the numbers are also astonishing, right? Like inflation adjusted public school uh, yearly tuition, 1950, $2,800. Uh, in 2017, it's it's fifteen thousand dollars. It's like a five yep. time increase. I mean, the other side will look at that and they'll say, "Oh no, you know, we we actually need fifty thousand dollars per child per year." So that's actually a cut relative to what I really want. But any rational person yeah. would look at the data and say, "No, it hasn't been cut relative to previous years. It has been consistently every decade increased in real terms." So. I mean, yeah, that's that's the argument that David Hogg would probably make in, in response, but I don't think he even responded to my tweet. And I think my tweet did get a lot of play, even though it was just a reply did, to his. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I was just wondering why you did that and what the outcome was. But yeah, that's that's good information. And people should actually, people obviously should be following you on Twitter, uh, but they should go look at that thread just to just to see what's out there. And if you also, if you want to be on Twitter, folks. You need to look at that thread uh, in preparation of what what some of the discourse is like. <laughs> so what else would you like people in my audience to do as far as uh, following you, being able to see your latest uh, work and articles? I want to make sure they know how to do that. Follow me on Twitter at DeAngelis Corey. It's just my last name and then my first name. I share my longer form articles there and, um, and obviously my tweets. But uh, if you want to look straight to my longer form articles, you can find it at Reason foundation's website and cato institute's website if you type in either of those organizations and my first name Corey, into google you'll find uh, my web pages at both cato and, and reason to find my longer form articles and if you want to look at my most recent article on the school reopening debate it's uh, co-authored with christos macridis at social science research network it's called our school reopening decisions uh, related to union influence? And the short answer is yes. We look at the uh, reopening decisions of 835 public school districts in the United States, and they are significantly related to teachers' union power according to four different metrics of of this uh, teachers' union influence. And uh, surprisingly, we didn't find any relationship to COVID cases and deaths per capita in the surrounding area. Absolutely. I looked at that this morning. So, hey, uh, we're right up against the hour. I think we nailed it. We covered everything I wanted to cover, even though we could have easily done a whole other hour on this stuff. But thank you so much for your time. I'm sure I'll be reaching out to you again in the near future for another one of these great conversations. All right. Thanks, Brett. Roll your cat back up the aisle. Kiss the checkout girls goodbye. to the end. If you are getting value out of these presentations, if you are finding them entertaining, educational, and accessible, that's really the triad that I shoot for in every show. Please consider becoming a supporter. You can go to patreon.com slash school sucks. We have three levels of involvement. Each level gets you additional behind the scenes content. We have been producing 
a ton of bonus material for our supporters since we stopped producing new episodes of the podcast. We have actually been more prolific in content production than we were the last few months of the podcast in these several months since the podcast. So there's a lot more uh, School Sucks, including archives. I just I changed hosting services for the podcast, so I've been able to archive everything back to the beginning of 2020, but that material's not in the podcast feed anymore. I really want people to be focused on this Essential School Sucks collection and not get distracted with all this other stuff. But if you want all this other stuff, and I'm going to continue working on backing up our archives all the way to 2009. So if you want the archives, as I speak back to 2020, it's like over 100 shows. Once you're supporting us at any level on Patreon, you can go to schoolsucks.fireside.fm slash subscribe. And you'll see a question that says, are you a Patreon supporter? And you can get a personal feed with all of those archives included. At our top Patreon level, you can also access a month-to-month membership in our private Unversity community. That is our social media for fans of School Sucks, homeschoolers, autodidacts, dissonance. <laughs> we meet three times every week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. You're, this week is going to be a little bit different because I'm going to be in Texas. But... Mondays at 8 Eastern and Wednesdays and Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern. And we do like an hour-long discussion group. It's pretty open forum. A lot of people like being able to get some visibility and support if they feel, uh, you know, isolated where they are. They don't have like-minded people in their families, in their friend circle, in their uh, employment environment. So it's one of the things that I'm most proud of that came out of the School Sucks Project is the University. And if you want a lifetime membership, you have to purchase our Ideas Into Action Summit, which is basically a guide to acquiring, assimilating, and presenting more persuasively new information. And I brought in a bunch of great uh, presenters to teach how to learn, how to integrate new knowledge, and how to be more convincing, more persuasive. That is the Ideas Into Action Summit. Uh, You can find a link for that in every show notes as well. And last but not least, I'm very, very proud of our partnership with Praxis. If you're listening to this as a teen and you're looking for alternatives to college, or you are a parent with a teen and you're looking for alternatives to college for that teen, you definitely want to check out Praxis. I think it is the most exciting and probably the most successful alternative to the college track. Very much focused on celebrating ambition and entrepreneurship in young people. Please enter through uh, the link in the show notes or right at the front page of schoolsucksproject.com. All right, I'll be back soon with more. Thanks again.